2: New Year's Day, the President's Palace now just being called the White House, informally because of the post-war paint job. It began at 11.30. The women were ushered in the cabinet, wives including Louisa Adams, the wife of John Quincy. They made their bows to Miss Monroe, the First Lady. Harrison Gray Otis called these events put on by the Monroes in the White House the most amusing, fatiguing, squeezing ceremonies to be imagined. No cards. Civilians mixed with diplomats and Washingtonians. Sometimes Indian delegations would add a flair to these events. Trays of wines and ice cubes went through the crowd. These more formal occasions at the White House were a change from Jefferson and Madison's Republican plain vanilla virtues. But Monroe had been ambassador and traveled the world. And he knew Washington was becoming a laughingstock. None of the ambassadors wanted to come. He wanted the federal capital to be more formal, for the presidency to be taken seriously. At this time, it was up to the president to decorate the house, their own furniture. This president could do so very well. He had been ambassador to France, and the Monroes had some great Louis XVI brass inlaid furniture, including empire gilt chairs with crimson satin adorned with gold eagles. This reflected the style of James Monroe, the Republican president, who knew how to party like a Federalist. He liked these occasions, and they weren't all stuffy. He enjoyed a good joke with his sometimes rival, Henry Clay, and his ribald humor. Once, when a bad wine from South America came in, Clay joked, it should have been sent with the President's message on South America, it was worth as much. Guess we're appalled! You can't joke like that at the White House. But Monroe cracked up. history stories. And I've been trying to tell them as best I can for now 15 years to provide you with more context when you pursue your politics. It's not a perfect solution. One guy talking, one guy doing research, doing the best he can, but it works, I think. And there are other people starting to do it now too. There always really were. In that last story, in addition to getting a sense of flair and a little bit of how parties change over time, even way back in the early 1800s as a Republican president tries to get a little bit federalist, you also see a story of executive power and a congressional challenge to that executive power in a light way. Yes, 15 years of my history can beat up your politics started with an enormous Dell desktop thing that hummed and I had to take the sound of that hum out and a Radio Shack microphone that made me sound weird and uh, a a silly little uh, intro that went on too long. Um, Thank you for joining me for some or all of that journey. And if you're new and you're just kind of listening for the first time, hey, this is going to be a little more retrospective episodes. If you go to Apple Podcasts right now and please subscribe, I, I got a whole bunch of episodes there too. Today, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to talk to two listeners. Both of them have been listeners since 2007. I'll talk to Kevin Willis about history and to Tom Morris about history and the movies and his movie podcast, The Good, The Bad, and The Nerdy. Oh, and we're very soon going to have Richard Bay of The Richard Bay Show, who is a fan of the podcast, and he's going to come on, and I'm talking to him soon. A few clips, though, from previous shows. Here's one that I I always keep in mind. I was trying to answer a person who challenged me in a good way to answer, like, what does it matter what the founders thought? When we're talking about politics today, I think the time he asked the question was 2010, what does it matter what Washington or Franklin thought about this? And we have Google, we have smartphones now. I don't entirely disagree with his point. But I thought that you should still consider, you know, a founder's opinion should only be one article of a debate, Uh, certainly, one consideration. But how do you express that right? And I remember I was walking in a park on a guided tour of some obscure parts of Manhattan, New York City, that people don't normally go to where there's trees and even caves. And there was one tree in particular the tour guide talked about. One of these areas is Inwood Park, still exists today at the northern end of Manhattan. And uh, the fellow that was giving us a tour mentioned that there was a particular tree, which can survive a long time, and this tree was 250 years old. And that where this tree stood was where the Hessians chased down the army of the Patriots that would join up with the army of George Washington coming from southern Manhattan, originally from Brooklyn, to cross at the Hudson River into New Jersey and begin a retreat. The tree is 250 years old. Now, we are not trees, but it puts things in some kind of a perspective to have some organic object, a living thing, is as old as these guys were. That was around at the time that Washington was a Revolutionary War general. Does it make you think one way or other about the question presented? No, it doesn't have to. I tell stories also to provide a human side of the history, like this one. Here's where I have to be frank. Lyndon Johnson was a bully. If you had to deal with him, he was a jerk. He was a guy that if we know him personally, if we had to deal with him in our job... God forbid, if we had to work for him, we would think all of those negative things. But because he was those things, more people could vote and seniors got health care. But he would not be fun to work for. Just ask the former Kennedy aides who began working for Johnson's administration. And then when they wanted to quit, Johnson threatened to draft them into the army if they left his administration. Or his helicopter pilot. In the book, Inside the President's Helicopter, Reflections of a White House Senior Pilot. Great book. Authored by Army Lieutenant Colonel Gene Boyer. He's actually the pilot who flew Richard Nixon home after his resignation. Boyer makes it clear in his book that although he came from a family of Democrats, supported the Democratic Party, he didn't think much of Lyndon Johnson as president. A drinker and a phony, he said. Ordered all kinds of crazy assignments. Treated the copter pilots like dirt. Moved the copter command to his ranch. You may not want to be his plumber, who he badgered until his shower head water pressure was that of a fire hose, the way LBJ liked it. Or ask Bill Moyers, who was scolded by LBJ for missing a statistic in a Medicare speech. Nor is it any better if you were a cabinet secretary or even a vice president working for Lyndon Johnson. And the point's not to slam Lyndon Johnson, not at all, but also to say that he got a lot done as president. It's just there's a trade-off. He had more legislative experience than any person, anybody recently saved Gerald Ford, and he had more than Ford. But without delay, because I'm going to talk about presidents with Kevin Willis. Willis is a longtime listener and history fan from the beginning. By the way, who thinks like I do that with his voice, he should have his own podcast? Kevin Willis. Kevin, you've been as far as I know, you're one of the longest listeners of the show.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you had nine episodes.
2: <laughs> something like that. <laughs> oh, That's great. Well, you kept listening, so I, I must have been doing something good.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, some of your later stuff, uh, your Ronald Reagan series is uh, was awesome. I loved that.
2: I felt like a couple of things were going on there. One is that if you remember the initial My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, it's like a lot of little topics. I had to, like, address an issue in, like, 20 minutes, half hour. And I felt I was doing so much of that that I was losing. Like, whereas a historian, a traditional one, will start reading books and doing research and stuff, getting deep on things, I was losing some of that over time. And I'm like, uh-oh, if I don't start delving into something i don't have any anchors anymore so like i picked a few topics one of which is the um which i'll surprise people one day with it is a whole history of the soviet union particularly the fall of it which i haven't aired it's it's been in notepads and legal things since 2013 Um, but reagan was another one
1: yeah, Reagan was awesome. Uh, the Arc of Commerce was uh, an excellent series. I really enjoyed that. I have a uh, yeah. I mean, of course, I, I like history, and uh, I like that sort of vertical run on just specifically on American history via the Arc of Commerce. That was really really interesting. It it takes a just a, this little slice of life, but a critical one, and follows it all the way through. Uh, that was. Uh, Actually, I, I was planning on re-listening to that again sometime soon.
2: You know, probably put it all together to make it easier for people on a page. Uh, yeah, I just felt that was one where I felt very strongly that here we are talking history. And, um, and this, is, this is something that, that I guess is a kernel. You get these little kernels from things. During an argument about representation, uh, corporate personhood, say, uh, one of the lines that somebody said is, well, what do you want? The legislature to be nothing but activists? I mean, if you don't let any corporate interest in, all it's going to be is ever. It's like if you business becomes the forbidden voodoo, nice little, you know, more from the right side of things. And it's like, yeah. And then that led me to thought, my God, you know, there's also a whole life. Most people in the history we're talking about
1: worked somewhere, did business. That is that is correct, and if you uh uh you, if the business just doesn't will not just become uh forbidden voodoo if it has any option, it will become activist itself. And <laughs> that's true too. So, you probably so. seen some funded. You already see that, like some astroturf groups
2: would just they would just secretly find ways to. It, it'll never leave, I guess, and that's what you learn doing the arc that these people, you know, Henry David Thoreau made pencils. Okay, so I didn't even plan that one. It evolved. You know, Reagan was planned. I knew exactly what the episodes were going to be. Well, I did adjust a little. I adjust a little when Trump came in. I had to adjust and have an episode nine called Shockwave because there were (laughs) way too many quotes. The best was Springsteen, who in both elections, Bruce Springsteen says in a concert, man, I just don't know what to say about this election. And then like pretty close to that, he says it in twenty. Uh, 16, man, I don't know what to say about this election. So I'm like, you know, going back, I said, I got to do one on the shockwave of just having this crazy new president, which people thought Reagan at the time was, and certainly as a candidate and the way he came off, you even see more of it now with some the tape of him and Nixon. And, you know, there's some argument to be made there that he wasn't that, that, you know, as a president and as a kind of his demeanor as a person, a a lot different than say Trump A story of one day in the Reagan administration illustrates this. Tip O'Neill talks about a meeting in the White House where a bipartisan group was discussing unemployment. Tip O'Neill mentioned that the rate was 7%, still too high. Reagan then said that it would be lower if the army was counted. Well, O'Neill shrugged and said, Well, that's true, but it's always been true. Then Reagan said, Those people can find jobs if they really want to. For O'Neill, it was symptomatic. He was getting steamed, Reagan went on. I'm told about the fellow on welfare who makes calls looking for work. On the third call, they offer him a job, and he hangs up. O'Neill is now livid, and everyone in the room can see. Don't give me that crap. The guy in Youngstown, Ohio, who's been laid off at the steel mill and has to make his mortgage payments? Your stories might work on your rich friends, not on us. Don't tell me he doesn't want to work. Reagan is a little bit shocked. Stammers a bit. Senator Alan Simpson, at this point, jumps in and asks them not to bicker. This can't do. You're the Speaker of the House. You're the leader of the free world. You two are always bickering. Sorry, O'Neill said. I just can't sit here and listen to him talk like this. I don't want my silence to be regarded as acquiescence. I have nothing but respect for the presidency. And then Reagan said, with the exception of this incumbent. O'Neill said he left that meeting, stormed out angry at a man who was so blind to the suffering of so many people. was Reagan at his worst, he would write later and then shortly after the meeting the challenger space shuttle exploded seven astronauts were lost and the president went onto television
0: the crew of the space shuttle challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives we will never forget them nor the last time we saw them
2: this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and Slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. O'Neill was watching. And he said of the man who he just had this argument with, As I listened to him, I had a tear in my eye and a lump in my throat. The Ark was totally a growth. It probably was going to be three originally and turned into what it was. I, I have all these Edison interviews that are missing. I'll have to, I never got a chance to put them in. It's a whole interview with Edison. And um, one of the things that's interesting about him is that he never considered himself a scientist. He was an inventor and he used science in a very practical way. And if it didn't do something or make something, he didn't care. And that was a fascinating comment by somebody who you'd think would be Scientists would love and revere and everything like
1: that. (laughs) Uh, How many episodes uh, do you think the uh, Soviet Union will be?
2: If I ever start that, the first thing I'm going to need to do is an expert. Oh, you have to start. Yeah, I have to start. I think it's going to be the 2022 project. Starting to give myself project, you know, and you know, and it'll be like anything else. It'll be I got to do a little behind the paywall and then bring it out later. Fortunately, with the advertising. Speaking of Ark and commerce. And nobody likes advertising. But one thing advertising has done is maybe I won't have to do that because I don't have to hide things. I won't have to do it very long. But anyway, I didn't answer the question. So number of episodes, there's so much because I start with a truck rolling down a road um, in the Russian, um, I guess it was, fall. And um, what you find out later is that truck is filled with restraints that could be used to hold back people. And that was ordered, um, during the coup of Gorbachev. And, uh, one of the things I want to get to, in addition to uh, the way of telling the whole history, of the late Soviet Union, the fall of the Soviet Union is that, um, you know, it came a lot closer than what people think. You know, Yeltsin was almost a lucky break and a lot of brave people and the opposite in Russia. As as what we had in China at Tiananmen Square, in other words, when they sent the tank in tanks in from the hinterland into Moscow, those guys would not fire on Russians, where in China, when they called the the tanks from Beijing would not fire on Beijing citizens in Tiananmen Square. But when they call the tanks from their hinterlands, um, well, they turned the cameras off, but I think we're all pretty clear what happened there. Then that's two different outcomes. Uh, So in telling that story about how close we came with the coup and the events of the coup, I'm going to digress into explaining things that then give you the history of what life was like in the Soviet Union. Um, Good and bad, and I have a lot of it. I have it from uh, Kremlinologists from the U.S., and some of them made mistakes, but some of them did well. Uh, a couple of books by journalists who went in there. Um, I think Hendrik Smith, I think I have it right. I hope I didn't, yeah, Hendrik Smith. Um, some great comments and observations, some Russian authors, some, um, newspapers, and then a Quora where a lot of Russians who lived in the Soviet Union were actually willing to talk a bit about it. So it's, uh, well, yeah, it's going to be some good stuff. I guess this functions as a mini preview for it. So I'm talking on and on. So fine. Now that, I really have to do that,
1: it. That, that's yes, you do have to do it, that's Kevin. A, if you one. want it, I that mean, you've like been one. a
2: listener so long, you get you get it. Then I am going to get a professor to help on that one because I have um, Ben Sawyer, who um, is from the Road to Now podcast, is an expert, and he also hooked me up with another person who can be helpful, really good at how the economy worked because you had the secret economy. That was, by the way. The, the GDP behind that secret economy in the Soviet Union was one of the most powerful economies of the 80s. And nobody <laughs> really knows that. I had no idea. It bought cars. It bought foreign goods. I mean, mostly it was domestic. But still, the size of the economy would rival countries at that time. And there was so much capitalism going on in the Soviet Union. A lot of it them looking the other way, despite a large police presence. There's all these things you know, we need to think about. Looking at the Soviet Union could make us feel better. I know people on the right of politics will be the first to to jump on that particular thing, and it's not it's not terribly far from the truth because there's such buffoonery that went on when you eliminate the total eliminate the free market and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's yeah. crime and things like that that it, that go uh, hand in hand with it, and there's corruption and inefficiency. It also, though, is a warning about a military state, because at the essence, the Soviet Union was a military state. And one has to watch, we love our veterans. I will be the first, of course, to say that. When they enter politics, they should be as subject to criticism as anyone else. Maybe with a little bit of, hey, let's cut the guy a little bit of slack. He spent a lot of time in the military. Um, You don't want to make what uh, John Glenn's opponent, his mistake of... Saying, "Oh, you didn't have a job when John Glenn was like in the Air Force <laughs> and an astronaut," and he's like, "Excuse me," and uh, lost that primary. But you also have to watch giving too much credence because that's exactly what happened after World War II. There's such heroism that anyone who was, you know, that that status was used, and Soviet Union never lost its kind of military society. And I don't think people often think of it that way. Because you think of it like how crazy how could something like that happen here? And the only one pathway people see is maybe through leftist and protest signs, but there is another pathway, and that was probably closer to the sustainability of the Soviet Union in the thirties and and that's more of a military society. you have to watch out for that too, where yeah
1: well, well, that is an answer to my question. <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, you well, I mean, I can tell how animated you are by the topic. I I, I feel certain you will deliver at least in twenty twenty two. Yeah, you I know, mean, I was on a first class flight
2: in twenty thirteen that was grounded, and I remember copying notes. That was twenty thirteen. So I have a whole. There's a wow. whole book there. The United States was of Athens, and we were of Sparta," said one Russian to the author Hendrik Smith. It was a society on heightened alert, with enemies declared or not. We know World War II. For them, it was the war, or the Great Patriotic War. Americans, in their perception, just helped. Soviet Union, Soviet citizens lost giant, heart-wrenching numbers. There were many more females in the Soviet Union and older females in the 60s, 70s, and 80s because a male generation had been almost wiped out with the Great Patriotic War. Heart-wrenching numbers, 20 millions of people died. It's known in the United States as a stat in a textbook, but it's not that kind of double known, that kind of real known. Only World War II forged what Soviet Union was, and some inkling of what Russia is today. Cementing farmers, Workers, party members, even the destroyed Orthodox Church was revived as an important patriotic organ during the war and survived through the fall of the Soviet Union. Lots of statues and military equipment, old rocket launchers, armored vehicles from World War II, the vehicle itself being the monument. And yes, you may see a bride and groom posing next to that military equipment taking pictures next to tanks or rocket launchers. Oh, yes. Don't get carried away. They still took photos in the traditional scenic places, lakes and forests and all, but the best photo for a wedding, the photo the couple just had to take, was next to a lovely green tank, a symbol of the patriotic struggle. After that, well, a visit to the Palace of Weddings, the name implying the role of government which was ever-present in life. Palace of Weddings. After which there were many a Russian street, many a toast to the bride. Oh, you'd better just do that. Not doing it would be like stepping on the American flag. Then after a dirty look, after you did what you were supposed to do, a dirty look from the groom, toast the bride, you would carefully switch gears and offer a second toast to all the women of the Soviet Union. And your tension with the hulky groom momentarily mitigated. You would switch as they snapped photos of the bride and groom in front of a rocket launcher, a tank, a transport carrier. Who cares? It's still so romantic. But it's still not finished because we, it's gonna end with the resolution of the coup but in the middle you're going to get russian culture from russians and their perspective and you know you and americans are like a disneyland and all of this stuff i I love it and and it but in the middle and in the end i mean we're gonna resolve what actually happened with that coup and i would say a warning of how close that really came if they weren't buffoons and didn't make a few mistakes
1: Do you remember – it was in the 80s sometime, and I believe it was like a kind of a 24-hour television trade between us and the Soviet Union where – uh selected a selected network or networks uh, mm-hmm. broadcast for 24 hours soviet mm-hmm. television and so it's but and they did the same thing in the uh soviet union and i remember i watched a lot of that television that day it was very interesting
2: you know i don't recall the specifics of course I, I recall things that uh they didn't like like uh you know our america with robert urich the uh, miniseries and they Soviet Union bought that to show on their t v so that they could show how horribly we were being portrayed, but they were doing some of the same to us, like for instance, there was a a whole mini series and that was popular in russia about uh about um how we uh negotiated secretly with the Germans to end the war quicker, but it didn't happen well at least I don't know that it happened, and uh it's not part of any history I've ever been made aware of and uh that um That, uh, you know, at their expense, and that's something that just got a lot of traction as a conspiracy theory in the Soviet Union and, and, you know, didn't fuel good relations,
1: among other things. I should mention uh, how I originally came to your podcast, because while I may not remember the specific year, I remember what I was (laughs) looking for, which was I wanted exactly your podcast. I was surprised to find it, actually. One that... uh, made a point of history and its relevance to politics when so much of contemporary political discussion tends to be very uh focused on the moment as if we just discovered everything yesterday and that there's no history to reference and that and i, I was a big believer at the time still am uh, that historical trends were very significant and very informative Whereas a lot of times people would say, oh, you know, this party or that party is going to go be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, Mm -hmm. it's going to be all Democrats or all Republicans for the next 40 years. And it just almost never happens. There's, you know, the uh, Democrats held on to the House for 40 years. But that, I thought, was more of an anomaly, more and particularly. That yeah. was in part because half the Democrats were we you know could have caucused with the Republicans at the time, yeah, and so, they
2: did, and they would they would easily provide cover for uh many Eisenhower or Nixon policies when pr- no Republican president feared being able to not you know not being able to use the democratic Congress when they needed with with a few exceptions. A speaker could call a party line vote and then you were in trouble, you know uh, you know, but just like today with uh there's um Mansion. There were there were several
1: mansions in the in the Democrats. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a lot fewer on both sides in terms mm-hmm. of you know who who the other party can rely on in certain circumstances based on the you know nature of the constituency uh, and and what their needs are. Things that I think I feel have been a lot more nationalized. It's it's there's fewer politicians even in the House that are going to say well. You know, this is not my party's position, but I know this is what the voters in my district want. Um, there's a lot more of uh, trying to make a national appeal and be a national politician, even though it, it, technically you're supposed to be representing the voters of your district. It is it is truer,
2: truer in America that... Uh... We set everything up to not have that virtual representation. We were aware of that concept and that the English had or the the British parliament, I should say, had that it was, you know, you, yes, I only represent a manor that's about the size of your average apartment building (laughs) in Cincinnati or something, but I represent all of England, Scotland and Wales. Uh, you know, by, by being in this parliament, I think about the country. And to some extent, it's true, some of those rich folks, their families were in there so long that they didn't care about their little manor. They really did care about the whole country. And some of the, the funny thing is, some of the American Whigs that, some of the Whigs that supported America during the revolution were from some of these country estates are like, this is, this is terrible. What are you doing to these guys? You know, this is a bad decision. But, you know, I do want to say something about what you said earlier. I'm glad that you you said that. And I approached the podcast when I started it with that exact thing. I am not apolitical completely. I I believe in pots. I was very I was unhappy, let's say, with the Iraq War. Let's generally say, with the way it was handled. I probably didn't like the origin, but I might be willing to trade that if it, you know, if it worked out. I could have been. Fine to agree to disagree in things, but that especially given how it worked out and how little I feel political consequence there was for Bush. In fact, I see these rankings of presidents, and I don't, you know, Bush's W. Bush is right there in the middle, and I'm not sure why there's not more of that. But in the UK, Tony Blair can hardly sign books without getting, you know, tomatoes thrown at him. And Bush, uh, you know, we don't see as much of that, okay? Uh, but You start looking at the history of things and Mm. it is the first effect is kind of an aspirin i think and then the second is you can still have your political issues like if i were in the chair though i'd still do things this way but it does temper everything you know the first lesson is has this happened before and usually it's yes there was some between 2016 and really even now there's some challenge to that and I've, but I've always said, uh, you know, yeah, there can be new events. It's not like it, it, everything's exactly like happened in history. Uh But um the real question is, and the question was during the last four years, too, is like, yeah, but is history still a guide? And if it's not, then we got to hang our hats up. But the answer is yes. It still is useful, even if you're not finding these exact
1: parallels. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to find, you know, just in case uh, like uh, the 2020 election where a lot of the trends you say typically would uh, predict what the election outcome would be, don't. You know, and then you get, OK, well, what has changed now? You know, these bellwethers uh, weren't actually bellwethers this time. What What's kind of different here? Was it uh, COVID? Was it something else? It's, uh, was it just how uh, abrasive Trump was? It's, it's just kind of interesting uh, yeah. to... And what does that mean, you know, come 2024 and 2028? It's just interesting to see. But I was to finish my story real quickly about finding the podcast. um, I was in the midst of arguing about uh, Ross Perot being a spoiler with some other people I knew, and uh, kind of documented it. And that got me thinking, you know, that because my argument was all about historical trends, how the incumbent tended to win unless there was a credible third-party challenge, uh, you know, unless uh, certain other factors were there if the, you know, if the party in power had just gotten the White House back, that sort of thing. And uh, I was like, you know, there's got to be someone else talking about this, you know, the, this kind of thing, you know, what what's always tended to happen. Terms of you know historical trends and and the general public acting as a kind of uh, responsive. While everyone has their own political issues, there tends to be you know after you know uh, two terms in power, three terms in power, it's like, oh, we're sick of the guy at the top, you know, and things tend to change. And, and with the exception of again the uh, Democrat Congress for forty years, that tends to be the larger pattern of. Uh, People saying, "Okay," kind of not necessarily throw all the bums out, but uh, tending to do things that shift the balance of power, or at least seem to, in terms of the labels on the people who are in control. Yeah,
2: I think, uh, and and there, those trends are useful. All really, any political consultant that's good is mm-hmm. looking at trends they're looking at history. It may be a short period of history. Journalism is gets better. some people try, some people do it badly um using history too much. that's why that's why I think when one exercises it, you have to be careful. It should be changing you as much as you're trying desperately. I really want to win this argument. It really should yes. be changing you <laughs> if you're not finding that enough, you probably aren't doing it right. Like, even in the, when I started and I was angry at W. Bush or whatever, and, you know, and I, I could just do a podcast talking about him, and, but I was often in any discussion with people, said, the reason this is important, because there's a history here. During the Civil War, blah, 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 blah. And I remember doing something about a me- his use of the media, kind of, kind of, um, misleading the New York Times into printing something or what have you. And until I, you know, started looking, oh, like, oh, crap, well, it looks like TR did it. Oh oh linky did it too okay so (laughs) you know uh oh he just destroyed a press that he didn't like and it wasn't in the south so okay uh we got um you know so there's there's yeah john adams woodrow wilson (laughs) yeah i mean so now i mean i've done a much more even developed and and some of the recent episodes are kind of extensions of what i did before with more information i'm definitely more of a researcher and a worker at it than a someone just sitting here with knowledge you know although I picked up a few things along the road but uh, I'm not uh, you know so so those early episodes God bless you for sitting through them because I think they're still good I argue
1: with myself a few times yeah, but uh, the uh, your later episodes where you pick a theme, you know, because you you talk like you're you, you research and then you share the knowledge. But you often come up with a interesting theme, just like you mentioned about your plants of Union podcast, mm-hmm. how you handled uh, the uh, episodes of the Reagan podcast and mm-hmm. the, the art of commerce. It makes it. Um, it adds a lot of value to the depiction of history. You know, there's not ju- you're not just relaying the story. You are um, highlighting things. You are um, uh, casting a particular light, a focus on you know, a certain arc through the history you're talking about. And I think that is often a- as informative, if not more informative, than just the uh, the full historical story you might get in a, a book that's just relaying all the details of everything that happened yeah, i mean you're, it's you're a choice it. and, I, and
2: i paid a price i don't mean to sound so terrible about it because it's it's fine it is what it's the choice but uh there's a little bit of a price if i were one that wanted to be and i did talk to laundry at a point in 2017 if i wanted to be one of these huge ones or whatever you really have to decide that you're just going to do history because history, just stories about it, it actually can offend people. Do you see the the reviews on some of those podcasts that just do <laughs> history? But but you know, it, it's generally it's less offensive. You're just telling story about this or that. And but I made a conscious decision to to actually straddle. And then yes, the modeling of the political issue must affect like how you're viewing why am i even talking about this is a question to answer i have this i'm doing one soon on airline deregulation and i have to address that in some part in minute to 12 is you know oh by the way why am i even talking about this why do you care and then that modeling changes the view the prism by which you view the the history perhaps but there is a price because like for instance um for the longest time, I've been not winning in history and not winning in news. You know, like in the in the early going, I could straddle and win in both categories a bit. Now I noticed it's like the specialists have come in, and just the great number of podcasts. Who knew? There's so many. Oh, Dolly Parton and Bruce <laughs> Springsteen and
1: Obama. Yes, would I have to make that choice between Bruce Carlson and Dolly Parton? It's a struggle.
2: <laughs> I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even be upset if uh you know that's one i wouldn't i wouldn't be upset or you know or you're allowed bob dylan too. well that's a good question for you what else you listen to besides me
1: um big fan of the the Thomas Jefferson hour uh, God, so Clay Jenkinson uh, who you and quite frankly I know he does actually he's often out of character talking about history putting things in context i, I really prefer the episodes where he's Thomas Jefferson answering questions the, yep. the I find those to be the the most enlightening and the most interesting and I think he does a really good job at that um uh, I listened to uh, a number of uh conservative uh, podcast like uh, Commentary uh, with uh, John Pahotters and mm-hmm. uh, also uh, uh, Ricochet, because I, I like the folks who uh, are more calm generally. Was, uh, those uh, And uh, Congressional Dish is uh, She does she just, a great job. Yeah, she doesn't like the Congress most of the time, but she does a great job of her coverage. <laughs> um, and past that, it's mostly just, uh, audio books. And like I say, you are my primary source of, uh, history in, uh, last six years at least. So it's uh, because work and life just keep me busy. And it's kind of like, I just want to keep, you know, keep a toe in, you know, uh, paying actually paying attention, listening to someone who, and that's again, why I like how you format your podcast. Because it's something that I can follow. I can get my mind around where I I can remember uh, and and kind of understand the context you're putting things in. And I just typically love your subject matter. The minute you said airline deregulation, I'm like, oh, that's for me. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, I hope there's
2: I hope there's a there's a hundred nation army out there that feels the same way to hear you saying this is interesting to me. You know, because sometimes, especially in the beginning, when there was less even interaction, and I have a Facebook and other things, but, uh, you know, I did get the sense, like, I'm just talking to a microphone. I think like any DJ radio, you know, we all have that. But podcasts are a great way to do exactly what you're saying. For, for instance, one I listen to is Entitled Opinions. And Entitled Opinions comes out, it's actually a college radio show that put on a podcast, and I can't remember the fellow's name, but it's entitled "Opinions." Comes out of Stanford. He talks about philosophy, a lot of complicated art, a lot of um, philosophy behind politics, you know, Heidegger and, and Nietzsche and things like this. And it, you know, mm-hmm. not stuff normally. If I was opening a book at this point, I would I would fall asleep. But I can keep up with it a little
1: with a podcast. Yeah. And if I can do that, great. I, I don't mean to keep uh, bringing up a uh, future podcast you haven't done yet, but <laughs> uh, on the uh, deregulation of the airlines, it's always been kind of my position that there's always a lot of pain in deregulating, particularly an in industry that's been largely nationalized, uh, because they've been hothouse flowers for so long that they're not prepared or equipped to... Work in the market the way uh, an Apple or a Google or a Walmart is, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so and, and there's a lot of struggle in terms of uh, either quality or price or or just service generally. And I, I've always felt the airlines suffered a lot from that, and they also suffer a lot in in downtimes uh, because it, when. The market dries up; they don't have that backing support uh, that uh, they used to in terms of uh, management and you know, in just general sense that you know the government kind of has a has a hand in here. You know, there's a stay; right. ha- there be they're helping keep the industry afloat, and and they had a, they felt an obligation because the airlines were so regulated.
2: Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that's crazy, but one of the reasons it even passed is that. Uh they didn't have a lobbying uh, force and the union associated didn't have. Why would they keep a lobbying on staff? Why would they keep the expense? This isn't going to change. We, we've been regulated forever. Now the AFL-CIO stepped in with its lobbyists to oppose it and the airlines eventually got other lobbyists, you know, and they did oppose it. A couple airlines, it was airline regulations a little easier because some of the airlines even got it, like United, for instance, uh, supported it because they were like, yeah, we benefit a little from regulation, but this is, first of all, we think these companies are benefiting more. It's a lot of factors there. I think that the airlines did run into that. A lot of them went bankrupt. A lot of the, the ones that existed then end up going bankrupt. Which was what some of what was predicted, and then some of it's just like what you're going to see when you open things up um, to a free market. I always get in that in the various places I've lived, you you see um, a bank opens up, and then another bank opens up next to it, and then there's like a hot dog stand that people liked, and it closes, and it becomes a bank, and people are like, <laughs> all these banks. And it's like, yeah, that's, that there's a little bit of the price of the free market. Because in other words, one of those three banks is going out of business. But for the moment, you're going to have to pay the price that your hot dog stand went out to see which one will go out of business, see which one does it better. And I've heard the same about like, uh, drugstore change and things like that. But, uh, that's somewhat what happened. Khan, the guy that was Carter's uh, chief regulator, you know, goes to Allegheny Airlines and he says, you know, Hey, I'm going to reduce, I'm going to remove the rules. What are you, what are you going to do? And they said, Oh, we might do this. We might do that or whatever. As soon as deregulation happens, they go and buy these big jets and they're no longer Allegheny Airlines. They want to be a national carrier like everybody else. They want that. They want the volume benefits and the uh, larger audience. They don't just want to be an Allegheny's airline and. That can be one of the problems. So there was a little bit of a problem with um some of the local services afterwards that might have been protected by regulation. And then there's just a lot of like, okay, now you got a lot of people competing and some of them aren't going to survive. So then you will have a little less competition because some of those don't survive. You start with enormous competition. And so it's uh, and, and it's a difficult thing to analyze. I probably won't make too much of a judgment about it, but I have several opinions of it and, and all of that. And that should be coming up probably after this episode. Is there anything else that you've been like, hey, I really been meaning to ask Bruce this or that? Huh?
1: Uh, I just want to I just want to hear your new podcast. Uh, Soviet Union, uh, the the uh, airline deregulation uh, what else is coming up?
2: Oh, okay. So, uh, one of the things is, uh, the 1890s, um, I've been researching and on the Patreon site. Oh, a little plug, uh, www.patreon.com www, 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 slash mhcbuib for those uh, interested people out there. So I have some of the scrapbook from it. And basically the scrapbook is just exactly what you think. It's me reading the notes. Um, but it turns out, uh, even that, it became kind of interesting to do and I had to shape it a little. So it's nice stories, but it's just a basically a little series, not going to be as big as our commerce or anything like that. Probably be a two episode on the American 1890s and everything that happened. And it's such a transformation decade. You know, there was a time when in St. Louis, right in the beginning of the 1890s, they could, you could basically, you know, Mark Twain and others used to take a cup, scoop it in the river. Or if you went to a bar there, you'd get a beer and a glass of river water. And they'd they even talk about the medicinal properties of it. Like wow. people from St. Louis love drinking that water. And it was 1900 when Chicago changed the direction of its river and sent all of that down the Mississippi. And that just ruined The whole thing. But the 1890s, you were still doing that. That's just one of, I mean, that's a whole decade. What else? I talk about all the attempts to fly, all of the cars being built in the U.S., some poets in there, Walt Whitman dies, you know. And then a lot of uh, political debates happen in the 1890s. The decision that the Gilded Age isn't the way to go is the battle that's fought in the 1890s, even though... Not everybody wins, you know. Eugene Debs or Brian don't get their way, but they get a little bit of it in the in the progressive era that comes afterwards. So yeah, just a fascinating time, and I just that's coming up.
1: I actually do have a little bit of a gap I got to fill. I'm oh I'm gonna come up with some episodes here. All right, uh, now okay. So ask you a question. I have do have one question to ask you, which is, uh, who is your favorite president in your lifetime, and then who's your favorite president before you were born? Um. Great question.
2: You know, I kind of liked Bill Clinton, um, maybe because he liked the presidency so much. And it's not to say, I'm not talking about greatest president or ranking, because I put him, he's very much um, in the lower middle, if you ask me, learned while he was in the office. Here's a good way to think about it. The last president who believed in even trying to meld issues at all between two parties. Yep. Because exactly after that, true. it was like, nope, it's about we win and we get what we want. And that's hey, and that's that's the game now, you know, but it was at least a guy trying there. You could see the American issues being worked out. OK, but, you know, th- that sounds like gushing. I mean, obviously, you know, from the series, there's aspects of Reagan that I think like when t- tax reforms undersold as an accomplishment, that's a huge, that made a huge difference in people's lives that we don't even talk about. His reaching out to Gorbachev and somebody else with less of status. We know because George H.W. Bush almost retreated from that. I think those two things are important. When you look at, uh, before, before, which would have been, I was born Nixon was my first and not, mm-hmm. not all that long. Boy, you know, there's a lot of presidents. So, uh, well, gotta these, pick one. This is hard to pick one. But the more I think about it, and it's a lot of unutilized or could have been in this, is that James Garfield starts to stand out to me as somebody who, if he got the full time, might have made a great president. And that's come from some recent podcasts that I've done and reading some of the books. He was, as as one of the books is titled, "Last the last uh, Lincoln Republican. And that uh, perhaps we would have been able to continue some policies or go in a good direction, not too much of the corrupt type Northern Republicans and not giving in too much to the redeemer governments in the South. That's somebody that I, I look to.
3: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances.
2: But you know that's hard just to pick one. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. The, the,
1: but that's a, who I'm going. Almost all of them have something redeeming, something fascinating, if not in their politics, and in their personality.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, my others to mention. I mean, Grant is there with some, also some failures. Uh, Grant is definitely there. Benjamin Harrison had a few more things that I liked about him than I. I wouldn't put him on that list though, because he had other failures. Yeah. And you know, but a uh,
1: few more than I things that I than I thought. Yeah. Well that is interesting. I'm glad I'm glad to finally have that question answered because that is one that I had that did I did have burning. So. You did have burning, well, yeah.
2: So you know, I, I haven't done a full ranking and I don't kind of agree with ranking, but I don't know, I yeah, might I do know. one anyway. You know, I have trouble with Carter. There's some things I like, but I can't totally some of the complaints are there too. I addressed that in the regula- deregulation episode. You know, probably yeah. a little better with Congress than people say but he's not better enough to totally make a historical revision.
1: You know? yeah, early on, and uh, particularly the first year or so of Trump's presidency, I, I commonly made the comparison to uh, Trump and Carter in terms mm. of coming in with an attitude, uh, not mm. working. With certain people, you know, being uh, not meeting the expectations of the Congress and the Senate there in terms of being invited, being talked to, being consulted on uh, initiatives, that sort of thing, and and having that backfire on them, and I I saw there was actually a lot of similarities. I know a lot of people might not make that comparison, but uh, it seemed like. Yeah, no, no.
2: I mean, um the the God complex is there. Well, again, okay, you know, you if you asked Jimmy Carter, he never would have said anything like that. Yeah. Use it as that, a that's put a big down difference. but yeah. but the way you know, like the, the I got elected and this was a bit of a crusade to get elected. That and that primary was a miracle. And I think he always felt like that. If he would have looked more to his general election and governed that way, you might have seen yeah. a different thing. He only got fifty percent of the vote and nearly lost it so uh that was okay reagan ended up beating him i think ford could have ended up beating him and coming back if that if that was in the cards on the republican nominating side so um i mean you're right every president there's like good but wilson nixon they have these qualities there's good and then there's awful stuff yeah and i think it's to the office i mean i listed clinton as my best but i mean there's some awful things there biden's doing some good things but i know that uh there's there's people that will disagree, or people that want to push harder on things. Both Wilson and Andrew Johnson, even in my own, um, maybe not my lifetime, but my the books that I read that would be on a library shelf, say, you know, still have uh, glorious um, references to Andrew Johnson and Woodrow Wilson. You know, and that was the the theme, but that changes over time. Do you think uh, if Huey Long had lived, he <laughs> could have been president? Well, you see that Trump factor. This is funny because sometimes politics informs history. I think that really, that's a good way to end. Like politics informs history too. So when I see that and see how much, when you have a fan base like that, primaries become obstacles you can just swarm over. I remember in 2015 thinking like, yeah, this Trump, he's got name recognition, but he's not going to, you know, Andrew Yang tried to run for New York City mayor. I mean, name recognition shoots up in the polls, then shoots right down. I maybe mean, maybe that would happen with Trump. Well, this is interesting. This is funny, but but that fan base and that that group that can that can storm over politics and I know you know he was claiming that he put FDR in office and he if he wasn't shot he probably would have primaried FDR. <clears throat> now, maybe you don't win that. But what about 1940? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, It's it's first of all, I think he could have got FDR run for the money in 1936 in in various primaries. Um, FDR would have had to go south to the more conservative Southerners. So in in any case, he would have changed politics greatly. Because I don't think I think Huey Long is going to be here running like uh, you know every man a king, very liberal program, and FDR is going to have no choice but to be protected by some like South Carolina. Um, and it uh, wouldn't be primaries at that point. It would be just getting votes, probably mm-hmm. from the major figures, and so he would have had to to defend against long. He would have had to become more conservative, and it would have been less to the New Deal. Or I guess you could argue he could have accelerated things even more. It's it's hard to it's hard to say. But I think if it's a party contest, an FDR great control of those machines, a chance, and if it happens, it's probably nineteen forty. And it's probably maybe the Republicans have to either support them or do some kind of coalition. Like, uh, don't we won't run a candidate or we don't really care about our candidate vote long just to get FDR out.
1: That is an amazingly detailed answer. <laughs> it for could be wrong. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, no,
2: it's great. Well, hey, Kevin, this has been great. Thanks for coming on My History could Beat Up Your Politics after being a listener for so long.
1: Oh, you're more than welcome. This has been awesome. Thanks a lot. I
2: talk now to Tom Morris. He has a podcast, The Good, The Bad, and The Nerdy, and he's been a listener for a long time, since 2007, and has been very active on Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on Facebook over the years. Uh, If you haven't joined that and you want to and you're on Facebook, Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Search for it. Hi, Tom.
4: Hey. This is Bruce Carlson. Well, I guess you know my voice. Thanks for having me on. I'm happy to do so. And, you know, one of the things I love, I always said about your podcast is you ground it down on history to explain why the politics is this specific way. I always tell people listen to your show because it makes so much more sense to a lot of people. They just don't understand because really nobody really does r- properly read the history.
2: Yeah, I think uh, that's part of it. Yep. Are they using the part? Because they, they, they want to get to their argument first, which is a human temptation. And I am not immune to it. I have politics. I have policy preferences, of course. They do get... Tapered a bit when you start to look at history and, like, well, they tried this and it didn't work. They tried this and it didn't work. Like, no one's ever going to agree to this, so it's not going to work, even if it works as a theoretical. And you start doing that and you do get less uh, angry. Uh, But um,
4: Congress used to literally fight each other on, on the floor. So, I mean, we could talk about like how bad Congress is now. It's like. It's different. They actually would physically stab each other if they could. But I love, and I've always, what I love about doing this is that you
2: get to, you can do like a little, a little bit of Paul Harvey, like more to the story. Like, and, uh, Absolutely. what, um, I used to to him, but what, uh, the
4: now the rest of the story, The rest
2: of the story. And, um, you know, it's like the guy that beat the other one with the cane. Um, I'm going to make it really quick. I love the fact that I was able to research and find that he was later challenged to a duel by another congressman, but that congressman was so excellent with the, uh, weapons and he, you get to choose your weapon. And he said rifles and they were like, do not, um, uh, this Anson, um, no, I forget his last name, but do not take him on a Burlingame. Do not take yeah. Anson Burlingame on with <laughs> rifles. You'll be, and so he, he had to demur out of it, and then lost a lot of like what he had built up, and he ended up uh, dying like the next year anyway. I forget that. Yeah, the uh, I mean Andrew
4: that. Jackson notorious dueler too. So it's I always find it hilarious people don't talk about that him and John Severe, you know the uh, you know general and first governor of Tennessee. They got into multiple almost duels, and people kept pulling away because you know John Severe usually had weapons on him. <laughs> uh john you know, andrew jackson however like just you threatened duel with his cane <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah i love the, the i talked about that like i think in one of them where it's like uh you know they didn't have the same presidential protection but in the case of jackson you had to protect people from the president because if you came <laughs> at him he was gonna beat you with his his cane but uh in any case um i'm glad we uh don't do as much of that anymore, even though I can see it.
4: Um, <laughs> um, you know, we're not without. I'm, I'm those sure problems. Uh, Hamilton has got some people thinking this might not be a bad idea. <laughs> so, well, this is great um, because.
2: Um, so I'll ask you this then: uh, Have you, um, you, you know, obviously, uh, have you enjoyed this, this
4: this cast over time? Have you, you know, evolution Always. noticed things? I mean, I, you know. I'm a history buff. I mean, my degree is political science. I love the fact that you break everything down. You know, I may not like Reagan, but I love the fact you spend all those episodes detailing all the details about Reagan. You mm-hmm. know, I love that you can, you know, look at what's going on in this particular presidential election and show how cycles. You know, it's, as I've always told, history does repeat itself because people don't pay attention. Even the ones who should, who were alive to when it last happened, they don't seem to realize these things constantly do happen. And you know, when something different does happen, it kind of it surprises so many people that it's like, well, I guess you had you didn't look at what happened five, you know, fifty years ago, or because it's like you know, they nobody really does in the, in like the large sizes understand what they've done or what they're doing.
2: Yeah, I think that's the whole reason for the starting. I was telling Coven um, before um, that uh, you know, yeah, I used to get to do political more political talks and I get, you just find myself getting angry and it's like, well, if you look a little bit at the history, you know, you still might be angry. Um You start to get angry over some, what happened to some historical figures, you know, I still think they sh- I think they should have impeached Johnson. You know, that would have um impeached Johnson, put Ben Wade in and then impeach Ben Wade eventually, but let him, let them solve the problem of reconstruction in the
4: meantime. I don't know.
2: You know, time yeah, machine. I mean, we can play that game.
4: But. I mean, it's the same thing. Like, should they, have, yeah, if they tried to have killed him at all, then we would have. <laughs> then you know, eventually, if you know, if Seward had gotten in charge, who knows how it would have gone? I was like, there are certain, you know, like I don't think anyone involved understood how you know things would go once Lincoln was assassinated, and it's yeah. You know, Every, and with Johnson taking over, it was a complete mess because Johnson really should have been vice president to begin with.
2: Absolutely true. as a vice presidential ticket holder, he performed his function of, um, you know, helping the ticket. But uh, after that, you know, yeah, he.
4: Uh, yeah, from a movie perspective, there's a reason there's never been an Andrew Johnson movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it that's has ca-
2: been. It's just back in the 40s. And it I was know. like really celebratory.
4: Yeah, and, you know, you know, and we're talking back in the 40s that, you know, the most popular film in the 40s was Sergeant York. I mean, people don't realize that. It was actually, you know, Sergeant York was like the highest grossing film for like four years during the entire war period. They won't get me. I'll go back in them hills. You ain't even put hands on your trail in 40, no matter how far back you go. Then they better not catch up
0: with me, or they will be a wishing they hadn't. York, take over. The only non-com left. The rest of you keep under cover. Here. Where are you going?
4: You not give me command. More than you know, any of the other great films of that of that uh, decade it was Sergeant York because it was, you know, Gary Cooper was such a huge star, Sergeant York was such a patriotic figure and the story was, you know, such a carefully made film. We'll talk more about it. What's the, the the Sergeant York story? This kind of came out of the fact that Sergeant, you know, Alvin York, you know, was the great World War One hero had, you know, he was uh, finally was trying to raise money for charity. So he agreed to let Hollywood make a movie based on his story. They cast Gary Cooper, who is probably the second biggest star in Hollywood. They made it in early 1941. It gets released in, I think, December of 1941, right after... Uh, the war you know we've uh pearl harbor or right before pearl harbor and the film plays in theaters for basically three and a half years top grosser for all three years you know it's and the, if you've seen the film it's actually pretty accurate specifically during the uh section where we deal with world war one you know they talked about the fact he was constant he tried to be conscientious objector. he got convinced finally to go fight he's from a rural part of tennessee Really had no idea what he was getting into, and because he was just a, a good hunter, and the uh, situation by that point, of World War One was so dire on the German side that he just had bad. He just had fantastic luck in capturing so many, uh, <laughs> you know, Germans. But and they also accurately depict. It wasn't just him, but he got all the credit. So well, that's I get the, You know, it's one of the cases where Hollywood actually was pretty accurate. Now they they glam it up a little bit, like when he meets. Yeah, um, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the senator, but. <laughs> I believe it's uh, Humes, which uh, I went to UT, so all the uh, buildings across the UT are all named after the congressmen and senators from that time oh, period. Okay,
2: so. okay, got it. Yeah, well, hey, so we're talking about movies now. Talk about your podcast.
4: Yes, it's the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy Movie Podcast. Uh, we've been doing it for about a little over a year and a half now. And as the name kind of implies, we, we review either a movie that's good, a movie that's bad, or movie that's nerdy. <laughs> And yeah, you know, I have rotating you know guests with me, and we you know, sometimes we'll argue like, is this a good movie? Is it a bad movie? Is it a nerdy movie? Sometimes it's pretty obvious what the movie is up front. Sometimes it's not. You know, like recently we did a series on all the Star Wars films, and you, know, you would think those are all nerdy. No, they're all, some are really good, some are really bad, some are really nerdy for specific reasons. You know, we've done a series. We recently covered. Uh, Films from 1994, specifically, which is one of those years that everyone talks about as one of those great years of movies. And we went through all five films that was nominated for Best Picture, although we've yet to do Pulp Fiction. That's the last one we have yet to do. We, we discussed how they are in our, in present day, how they look. And then we also looked at other films of that year They kind of show comparisons. Like, for instance, is Ed Wood a better movie than Forrest Gump? Mm-hmm. We, and, uh, you know, in consensus, we seem to all agree we would rather watch Ed Wood more than we would watch Forrest Gump actually we know forrest gump was the highest grossing film that year which is you know a rare case where the oscar winner is the highest grossing film but you know and specifically considering forrest gump is a historical film how accurate is it at some points and how accurate is how much of it is more hollywood trying to romanticize mm-hmm. the uh the baby boomer generation
2: yeah i mean i think it's well it's a, it's a funny story and that, there, that there's a that there's a forrest gump uh you know, figure going through history, meeting, you know, LBJ and Kennedy and, and being in the hippie movement and then Nixon and then, uh, jogging during the eighties and being part of the fitness craze and, and all of that. Yeah.
4: Invent, inventing bumper stickers and having a nice day, you know, which, also in historically inaccurate, those those you know, were all invented <laughs> way before then. It's you know, uh, the film itself like especially when you get to the seventies parts, lot I mean, there's no way Forrest was the one who caught who got the Watergate scandal started by right. like, calling the the but you know, oh hey, let's throw this bin. Hey, let's have him meet John Lennon, let's have him help him write the song. Imagine, you know, it's 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 funny at the time, but it's kind of ridiculous the more you watch it. But I've often praised, you know, the one thing that uh, gump should get credit for is the one is the sequence in vietnam
0: specifically mm-hmm.
4: like the, the main battle because a lot you know my uncle fought in vietnam he said that's pretty much how it was it lots of rain and then suddenly you'd be in a horrible f- firefight because the sun came out and you know there was you know they actually showed how you, they would do napalm strikes and you know should we point out 94 you already had a plethora a vietnam film showing different depictions of it you know mm-hmm. platoon showing oliver stone's perspective when he fought in vietnam full metal jacket which uh gets criticized for its kind of fantasizing way of showing how to the tibet i mean uh Finn's offensive was but then like my father told me the section that was entirely a boot camp that was what he experienced when he was in uh basic
2: well, training i think you bring up a good point that um you you know even if, and and people who like history, and I have this tendency, you know, we'll just like give up on something if there's something wrong. And it's hard. I think, though, you have to open up a little. Like, for instance, not a movie, but the TV show, Turn. I just couldn't watch anymore. I'm, I'm sorry, because I feel, I felt like you're showing Adams as a 25 year old. The man was like 50 during the events of the revolution. (laughs) Like, but in, in other cases, I think like, I'll give you an example, Hamilton, the musical. I watched that when it became available on the internet. I never could get the Broadway tickets. I used to hover around, uh, the, the theater a little bit and like pretend I was going in. So I looked cool. I even took a picture that I used for the podcast once with me and there's Hamilton, but no one could get tickets to that. So, uh, you know, um, but I finally did see it. And I think that while there are some, a few things kind of wrong, um, they're, they're few, they're few little things, um, because and some of them have to do with the compression of time, which historians writing large books don't have to worry about. All right. That's, that's the, you have to compress time in movies or plays or TV. But then I also feel like the one thing that it adds by the style of presentation is the spirit of the time. The agony that maybe Hamilton felt living like he did is probably best expressed in that kind of form of music, where somebody who's used to, like, a traditional history presentation is probably, like, you know, looking at it and saying, um, you know, now, oh, well, this is all garbage because, look, it's rap, and they don't even have rap at that time, so it's ahistorical, and it's not, you know what? I'm like... Yeah, but for conveying, say, emotion, you may be using a device such as a history book or a black and white movie or something else that's not correctly conveying the emotion and he gets it done for you with the actors and their performance. Yeah. Of, uh, and, and, another I've, level.
4: and I've said if you want, if you you have issues with Hampton, watch seventeen seventy six <laughs> and then yeah. you get like a more you know, it's Yeah, <laughs> you'll feel a lot better. <laughs> yeah. It's like seventeen seventy six is like well some of it's accurate some of it's just ridiculous. So, watching you know Ben Franklin you know sing in you know tap dance is something should drive you more nuts than watching you know uh, George Washington Thomas Jefferson and Hamilton have a rap battle because yeah. that's actually probably more likely. Happen. I don't know you know something I always like to bring out is recently when Lincoln came out about ten years ago that broke one of the biggest myths about Lincoln. Which was you know pretty much because of Hollywood, everyone thought Lincoln had a deep voice. And then when we get the you know a more historically accurate version of Lincoln, played by Daniel A. Lewis, he's speaking with what most believe is his correct tone, which is light and soft.
1: Shall we stop this bleeding?
2: Yeah. Did anyone ever meet anyone from Kentucky or in Southern Illinois? Like, what do they do? They think they sound like? And no. <laughs> you know, f- for public speaking in politics, you, there might have been a little bit of effect that one had to to be heard. But no, I think most of it's from those, um, from the from the movie. Um, probably young, before. Young that.
4: Abe Lincoln. Most people say,
2: say Young Abe Lincoln. Which-
0: well, you all know I'm just a fresh lawyer trying to get ahead. But some of you boys act like you want to do me out of my first clients. Oh, yeah, let him Boy, I'm not saying you fellas are not right. Maybe these boys do deserve to hang. But with me handling their case, don't look like you'll have much to worry about on that score. <laughs> All I'm asking is to have it done with some legal pomp and show. That's all right. Right, How about our side of it? We've gone to a heap of trouble not to have at least one hanging. Sure you have, Mac. And if these boys had more than one life, I'd say go ahead. Maybe a little hanging mightn't do them any harm. But the sort of hanging you boys would give them would be so, so permanent. Trouble is, when men start taking the law into their own hands, just zapped in all the confusion and fun to start hanging somebody who's not a murderer, somebody who is.
4: One of those actors specifically would talk, talked in that tone, because that's how they talked, and people just assumed that's how it went, and from that point on, no matter what the depiction was, even if it was like Gore Vidal, Lincoln, with the... Um... Sam Watterson, you get that everyone has starts talking with him with this kind of deeper voice, which that wasn't historically accurate. And specifically when talking about Civil War, Hollywood's influence on how people perceive it is fascinating. You know, on you must remember this podcast with Karina Wong where she talked about how the uh, movie, A Birth of a Nation, truly triggered why there were so many you know, mm-hmm. Civil War Confederate memorials. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the time that movie was released and you look at when a lot of those statues were put up, there's a correlation, because it was such a huge box office, and the film has such a very pro-Confederacy slant that, of course, it would stir up these emotions for people who were not alive about their grandfathers that they never met. Yeah, and, you know, I, it's, I think that's it's,
2: totally... Oh, I love the You Must Remember This podcast, by the way. Great, great podcast.
4: Yeah, if, if anyone wants to listen about Hollywood history, that is a fantastic sh- uh, podcast to listen to. And, you know, another thing, but as you get into, like, the... 60s and 70s, and some would say Vietnam War footage kind of help influence this. But when you get to, I guess the term revisionist Western, and uh, it becomes the thing. Now I always say, and you know, it's probably because of my love of the cinema is why my podcast has the name. But the Good and the Bad and the Ugly is the film that I think truly started what I would call a more gritty look at the Civil War period, even though it's a spaghetti Western. There's this great sequence set at a Civil War battle over a bridge that, you know, it's literally people are dying. They're all sweaty. It's a big old mess. It's not like something you would see in a traditional one with John Wayne, like, huh. or, yeah, or something Disney would Because a lot of people forget Walt Disney produced a lot of Civil War era films. So you get something like this Clint Eastwood's in it. And then after he stops working with uh, Sergio Leone, he starts making his own westerns, which are very dark and gritty and that kind of this becomes great. this whole movement of this of the new dark and gritty you know depictions of war and of those time periods and you know i mean yeah
2: no i mean i think that that's a it's a great point it's how it changes there's no doubt that from uh woodrow wilson said it's like writing history with lightning and um it's it's Unfortunately, he said it in the wrong context, but it's you know so, sort of supportive of sort of supportive of birth of nation. There is a little bit of controversy about that. the the um, uh, the The producer might have uh, gone run a little bit with Wilson's quote more than he said, but hey, we never know. We you know some of that. Yeah,
4: yeah. D.W. Griffin. It's funny. Griffin was accused of being a racist film, which he said he wasn't. But if you watch it, it's very you know. Racist depictions of everything, but there are some very historically accurate depictions, like Lincoln's assassination. What's interesting then is you get he, the next year he makes the movie *Intolerance*, which is this incredibly massive epic about yeah, you know, which includes sections about the Huguenots being massacred, Jesus Christ's you know crucifixion, and you get all this like you know, the Tower of Babel. You get these ridiculously <laughs> complex historical reenactments. And, you know, he's trying to argue against his views in that film. I interpreted the intolerance
2: as it was a counter to the reaction to him because there was a very aggressive movement. While Birth of the Nation did, you know, unfortunately uh, really move forward the the, the second Ku Klux Klan, there was an anti-movement. The NAACP was out there. There was boycotts of various movies, particularly in the North. And there was this whole movement against them, particularly in professional Hollywood. And to me, intolerance just smacks of like a a kind of counter-tweet or a counter-comment on Facebook. It was just like, yeah, you guys are intolerant because you won't accept any other view. And let me show you instances of history. It, it's cleverly disguised as like, let me show you how bad things happen through history. Um, But I also felt it was kind of like, You people, because another another one of the little scenes in *Intolerance* is the New England mums kind of judging people, and there you really get the connection between. Yes, it's just like the. That's always, that was always the Southerners' view of New England, maybe with some accuracy, you know. They would say boasting, boasting Massachusetts, their Puritan values and things. But I, yeah, I always felt that was a little bit of like too much of, uh, of him. But in the same time, he creates these great movie effects and these wonderful scenes for a horrible thing. Exactly. For history, one of the most damaging, uh, has always been the, the scenes not only in that movie, but in other books and other accounts where the legislatures in the reconstruction governments, you know, are a bunch of idiots and, and all of that. And, and and it's all racially motivated when the really the evidence says something else that African-Americans were tempting to start governments and take care of themselves in areas where in many cases they had the majority. Uh, and or at least had enough of a voting block that with any other group over time, you see that they become part of the establishment, but that wasn't allowed to happen because of the, so that's one of the more tragic scenes. When I see that to me, when I, when I watch that or parts of that. Um
4: yeah. I mean, I've watched it a couple, and I'm a silent film buff. Like for instance, mm. you watch a movie like the general from Bush, it's also from the Confederate side, but it's a farce. There's mm. some accurate, there's a very accurate like battle sequence, but it's, Once again, it's a farce. You know, you're not supposed to take it seriously. Uh, But then you get, but when you try to make it like a serious drama, then you get the distortion. And but you know, as I point out, but say you get to 1989 when Glory comes out, which is one of the most gritty depictions of the Civil War battles. I've often said, you know, if you want to watch a movie about Civil War, watch Glory. Don't watch Gone with the Wind. Don't watch any of these other. You know, uh, from those periods where they were trying to make it glorious, we need to look at a movie where we show how horrible all the whole conflict was. And I often give credit to, you know, Denzel Washington's performance and, you know, Matthew Broderick's performance. You get this kind of duality that the film really does a good job depicting, strangely enough. And, you know, I was in high school in the 90s, and they actually would – they had made an edit – of that film to show in high schools, which it was a regular thing. You would watch it in in high school because mm-hmm. it was one of the more grounded versions. And prior to that, when I was in middle school, we'd watch Gone with the Wind, which bored me, and I've always thought, it's one. I've always been on the record, I don't like Gone with the Wind. I don't think it's a good movie. I think it's too long and too ridiculous. Yet, that was something you'd watch for, his, for Civil War, you know, lessons. Watch a movie like Glory, which you can't really show at younger ages, but in, maybe in high school level, you get a real grit of like the damage those war or, you know, like conflicts were when cannonballs be fired <laughs> marching troops how
2: what did you think of uh gettysburg
4: see i i love half of the film i do feel <laughs> like it, i always feel like they stretch stuff out but you because know, yeah. if they chopped it up like they originally discussed and you know, you know there's a miniseries version of that and gods and generals, which i think actually does better you need those breaks it's still very grounded really good I you know i've said for uh jeff daniels is fantastic in the film you know i like uh and i feel like if they he'd been kind of more of the central figure more than lee then you, know, you would have gotten a more interesting pro- production you know something you really should watch just for the uh, same thing you get these there haven't been a lot of civil war era films pretty much in the last couple of decades one they're expensive but two it's just like the there are some taboo nature to it but also just the fact that matters they used to make Civil War films all the time, just the same thing. They had Western sets and Civil War costumes They just reuse over and over again. Now it's much more expensive to do this kind of thing. You know, the Coen Brothers version of True Grit was far more accurate to the novel, but a lot more expensive than say the John Wayne version because you had to have these period accurate costumes and you know mm-hmm. that were way more expensive and you know ground you know grittiness for how everyone's makeup was and how their uh, physical appearances were. But at the same time, it's a fantastic film. And it was a huge hit. So you, know, you can make an argument here and there. You can try Civil War era epics or just or dramas and see what the audience will take. You know, I've said for the Tombstone, which is a fantastic western with Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday, one of the best performances ever of the '90s, yeah, is fantastic. But then you say the next year when Kevin Costner's Wyatt Earp came out, which was probably more historically grounded, but too much I always said it's the film that had too much in it, you know, it's like mm-hmm. it just drags in certain sections, even though that's an interesting part of wider story. do you need it in a film
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, and so if um and what would you say if you do you have a favorite historical film?
4: <sighs> I kind of dance around like I said, for instance, I love the general, even though it's not exactly the mm-hmm. most historical effort. Mm-hmm. but for me, I probably have to lean toward either Tombstone or if we're talking more just, just general history. I love, you know, um, I love Saving Private Runs because it's such a fantastic Spielberg film. Mm. And you know, there's you know, it's kind of a wide range to, you we're know, to talk to historical accuracy. But personally, and I've done this on the podcast, I think Kingdom of Heaven from uh, Ridley Scott, especially if you see the director's cut, is one of the best films ever about medieval conflict, the conflict going on that's been going on in Israel for, several thousand years at this point and the film died, you know such a great and if you see the director's cut which is much longer mm. includes plot lines they edited it out because they thought the movie was too long completely you know gives a full perspective how of how the crusades were and in a film i told everyone if you want to watch and understand why the middle east is such a complex story this movie accurately digs into that and, uh, I, you know, and that's the one I would probably pick as my favorite historical film at this point.
2: Yeah, I don't have a lot. I would have to go almost with Lincoln because uh, for politics, guy, like for historical politics, guys, you don't have a lot. Um, so I'm thinking of, um, I mean Mr. Smith goes yeah. to Washington. I mean, but, uh, that's, and that <laughs> shows you a couple things. I think for the president of the Senate, the vice president did fall asleep yeah. a lot. Um, I think Lincoln, at least showing you a political battle live, whether there were some inaccuracies <laughs> or not showing you a political battle and showing you Congress and making that exciting people needed to see, like, it's not so easy. You have to like no. sway people to your cause. And
4: yeah, Spielberg famously, when he hired Tony Kushner to write the screenplay, it was like massive like and then he said just cut it down to this particular story he said that's the story we should tell they trimmed it drastically down and that's what the movie got so you know that's an example you have the right director and the right screenwriter working together with the right actor here but thanks for having me on oh same here thanks so much yeah and for like i said let me just do one more plug it's the good the bad and the nerdy movie podcast you can find us on almost any platform at this point okay great thanks thanks tom
2: I want to thank Kevin Willis and Tom Morris, and I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash MHCBUYP. We have a special episode there, Draft Johnson, about Johnson and the 68 convention. We are going to play at the end of August, but if you can't wait, go to Patreon now and get it. Thanks for listening.
1: As a longtime foreign correspondent,